Welcome life extension enthusiasts. This is Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views about life extension from around the world. Something that is often missing from modern media is the follow-up, examining trends, predictions, and research over the long haul. Thus, it is with pleasure that we get to speak with an innovator, Keith Henson, who has been involved with several bleeding-edge initiatives over several decades, from space engineering to cryonics. Find out his perspectives on the past and things to come. And now I would like to welcome to the podcast, Keith Henson. Good morning. Yes, hello. You know, I assume that most of the listeners will be somewhat familiar with your activities throughout the years, but could you describe briefly some of the main movements you've been involved with? Oh, goodness, it's a long list. Of course, L5 Society, where I was the founder. Then I got involved with cryonics, nanotechnology actually first, and then cryonics, because that made nanotechnology make somewhat of sense. Then I got tangled up with the encryption business for a while and various free speech outgrowths of that and wound up for a while as a refugee as a result of duking it out with the uh, Church of Scientology. Uh, while I was in Canada, I was, you know, all the stuff about cops wearing cameras nowadays, right? Right. Well, when I was in Canada 15 years ago, I wrote a pretty extensive business plan and actually designed up the equipment and built a, you know, gotten far into building badge cameras. Well, that's amazing, yeah, because now many uh, local departments in the U.S. and across the world are adopting that technology. Yep, for the very reasons that I said, and some of the very problems that I've tried to get around in the early design problems were brought up recently, where they had somebody getting into the cameras and editing them. And I was not going to make that impossible, but I was going to make it apparent that there had been tampering on anything. Well, I'll tell you what, back to the L5 Society, which eventually... 40 years ago. 40 years ago, yes. (laughs) Uh, Like you said, ahead of your time there. It eventually became the National Space Society. Do you still advise or work with the National Space Society? Very little. They've become a bureaucratic type of operation as you might expect for an organization that has settled into middle age. Sure. Well, being involved at such an early stage, what is your perspective on the perceived general lack of interest in space exploration in the present day? And by that, I mean space used to be on the forefront of popular culture back in the 60s and 70s. Now it seems more of a niche pursuit. That could be, although there's an awful lot of interest in the the things like exploring the comet. Uh, The landing on Mars was fantastically well attended where the Curiosity rover sat down. And there's just been, uh, it's it's hard to say. Problem is not lack of interest. It's really more lack of money. Right. Uh, The budgets used to be much higher for national space organizations. Do you hold out a lot of hope that private organizations can pick up the slack? Not on the scale that I think it needs to be picked up on. And I I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the United States government at any level due to my experiences. Um, one of the main functions of governments, of course, is to keep criminals at bay and rather than uh, aiding them through the courts. But that's what they did. But anyway, I, I believe the system, the various problems that need to be done and solved in space at the moment are so big that it will take a government to do it. 
it's not a huge, huge amount of money by, on an absolute scale of such things, but getting started with, for example, building power satellites is way beyond any kind of commercial enterprise I can think of. Yeah, and now you mentioned the space solar satellites, and that idea has been around for a while now, a couple of decades perhaps? Uh, Hulk, it was it was predated the L5 Society by uh, oh, seven years. Uh-huh. Yeah, Peter Glazer thought it up in uh, 1968, or I think that's the date on the patent. I'm not sure. And the latest uh, version of that that you have shown some interest in is thermal power generation in space, correct? Yeah, it's an alternative. I hate to have anything that doesn't have alternatives to it, because otherwise, what do you measure something against? PV, you know, photovoltaics has been the approach forever for power satellites. And there's a lot to be said for them. It's also true that they're not terribly efficient. And it may be that it's easier to build um, turbines than it is to build lots and lots of silicon. So and mount them in millions of frames. That's the current thing I've been working on. And the NSS runs their annual convention, the uh, International Space Development Conference. And we just produced a video of hauling all the parts into space and constructing a power satellite. Yes, I believe I saw that on YouTube recently. If someone searches space solar power, will they find that video fairly easily? I'm not sure. that if I know that they will get it if they go to YouTube and look for the uh, animator in the thing, which is Chris Holland. Okay. That will be something we can point uh, listeners toward. Now, I'm pretty fond of grand space engineering projects like the toroidal space habitats. And there have been engineering designs to hollow out asteroids and things like that for space habitats, but also in particular with space solar power. What is your comment on the one problem that I don't think most people are considering? And that is that microwave energy is attenuated in the atmosphere. It absorbs a significant fraction of microwave energy. Now, for space solar power, that that isn't a big problem unless you consider environmental concerns. Now, I can just see, perhaps you can as well, if the thing was ever built, that many environmental uh, concerned citizens would say, stop microwaving the atmosphere. You're radiating the atmosphere. I don't care if it's only 10% or 20% that is absorbed. Uh, It's terrible that you're radiating and microwaving the atmosphere, the air we breathe. Certainly you can see the objection from that angle, right? What would you say to that? Well, that's the reason that it's not going to be built in the United States. But you're wrong on the atmosphere absorbing. It's very strongly dependent on the frequency that's involved. Now, there are frequencies which we actually plan to use for other things, which are completely stopped by the atmosphere. Up around 140 gigahertz, it completely stops it. But this is down in the, in the area where the atmosphere is essentially transparent. It's the same frequency that's used in cell phones and microwave ovens. There's reasons to believe, in fact, there's extremely strong reasons to believe that it's not a problem at all. So you would select frequencies that are barely at all absorbed by the atmosphere. Right, exactly. Now, they are absorbed by a really heavy amount of rainfall coming down, and you can lose 1% or 2% of the power from the maximum rainstorm that's been recorded. Okay. 
All right. Well, that is a uh, very interesting solution then to the... It's It's been known and well understood since the uh, late 70s. And if you go in and if you look up power satellite or I think its name is actually space-based solar power, but if you come close to that and put it into uh, Wikipedia... It'll drop you on an article that covers essentially all of those details in there, especially the ones about the safety of it and how you keep it, how you keep the beam focused on the antenna from, you know, a, a long, long way, 36,000 kilometers away. Sure. Well, on to a different topic. Uh, you were involved in cryonics at a fairly early stage. Considering this, I thought you might have a good perspective on how the adoption of the practice has been very slow. What is it that causes most people to reject cryonics? Actually, that's something that if I knew what the answer was, it'd be worth a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Alcor has been willing to to pay a great deal of money for a long time to anybody that could come up with a really good way of marketing cryonics. And nobody has ever stepped up to that. Nobody's ever had an idea on, really an idea on what it takes to do it. I was there, I, my membership number in Alcor is like very low. It's under 100. Yeah. And they're up to, I don't know, it's way over 1,000 at this point. So it's undergone a lot of growth. But, you know, it isn't the thing which is taking off and becoming, you know, a, a matter of millions. Still, they have 100 people, 120 people or something like that frozen by this point. So there is growth, but it's just a little slower, I think, than most chronicists would have hoped for. I know Robert Ettinger, back in the 60s, thought that uh, everyone would think, wow, what a great idea, fantastic idea, and we'd have millions (laughs) by now. It probably will wind up with everybody signing up for it when it's too, when you don't need it anymore. (laughs) Oh, I suppose. (laughs) Or when it's not as critical, right? Well, yeah, I mean, with the kind of advances that, you expect to see in medicine over the next um, 40, 50 years here, people aren't going to, they're just going to quit dying for the most part. What about any interesting technology that you've seen lately? What has piqued your interest? Well, actually, the interest is not on really recent technology, although Skylon technology stuff has only been demonstrated for a couple of years now. What's really the thing I've been working on at the moment is this power satellite business, which is a combination of technologies and sticking them all into the appropriate uh, economic model to make power satellites undercut coal. Yeah, that would be a tremendous uh, accomplishment. That's for sure. It has implications all over the place because, for example, cryonics, the cryonics patients are not likely to make it through a uh, civilization collapse. And if we run low on energy, we're going to have a hard time in maintaining the... uh, advancement of things which we really need to do to get to get beyond you know a lot of the kind of problems that humans have uh, now in that regard i would tend to think artificial intelligence the development thereof would help out in of course any technological advances uh, do you view artificial intelligence as a near-term existential threat uh no i've written about it rather extensively um you can find it in several places on the net. The easiest thing to do, though, I guess, is to just Google for clinic seed. It's a little story about a couple of libertarians uh, selling clinic seeds in Africa to the uh, the villagers there. 
and the untoward effects that they eventually have. I follow it a very, very nice, friendly AI through the essential extinction of the humans in that area. Okay, well, that would be something <laughs> good to read then, something for people to, to look up uh, to get a, kind of a viewpoint there. On that subject, do you think that, say, artificial general intelligence will develop on its own uh, substrate-dependent track, or do you think some sort of super intelligence will emerge from uh, the merging of man and machine? I don't know. It's one of those things that there is so much controversy about it and so much thought that I don't think it's practical to even have an opinion on it, unfortunately. Uh, just however it develops, we'll have to adapt yeah, and deal with it. You, you can see, for example, well, one of the things that people have said is that is that you won't have a singularity because nanotechnology won't work out, or you won't have a singularity because AI won't work out. Well, it really almost doesn't matter, because if you get AI, it's going to figure out how to do nanotechnology really fast, and if you wind up doing nanotechnology, you'd have the ability to completely understand natural minds simply by taking them apart and uh, reconstructing them and so forth. And, and you're going to get AI that way. So no matter what happens, I think you're going to wind up in a – unless you wind up with something really bad happening. Uh, otherwise, I think you're going to wind up uh, with both of them happening and pretty quick. My okay. guess on it is before the middle of the century. And then lastly, is there anything uh, that you'd like to promote uh, to the listeners? Any books coming up? Any conferences you might be speaking at? Um, the conferences I'm speaking at this year are mostly pretty technical ones, you know, IEEE specialty conferences and such. But for a start, there's a, mo there's a, a piece of video out on YouTube, which we already mentioned, and there's from that year, there's pointers to a couple of articles that I've written on it. And it's one of those kind of things where I'd almost rather have people researching and writing more articles than I would anything else, because the ideas really need to get out there. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast, Mr. Hansen. You're welcome. Anytime. Perspective. Patience. Those two words are something to keep in mind as we continue on this human adventure. Grand goals are usually achieved through persistence and hard work. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.